0: Hear now the word of the Lord from Ecclesiastes, starting in chapter 1, verse 12, and we're going to read through the end of, verse, or of chapter 1, and then we'll, we'll pause and talk about that before moving on to the rest of our passage. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 12, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to no wisdom and to no madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, in 1859, a man named Samuel Smiles published a book titled Self-Help. Self-Help. Now, this book launched uh, what has now come to be known as the self-help industry, but this book was very influential in popularizing ideas that are still with us to this day. Um, It was in that book which came the idea, God helps those who help themselves. Interestingly, uh, a Barna research study found that 52% of professing Christians think that that line, God helps those who help themselves, is from the Bible. In fact, it's from Samuel Smile's book from 1859 called Self-Help. Well, today, as we fast forward, this self-help industry is huge. It's expanding, and year by year, it grows and grows and grows. Today, books and podcasts and courses and products in this self-help category make up an 11 billion, billion with a B, dollar industry, and it's growing year after year after year. Now, why? Why is there such an insatiable hunger for self-help information? Well, it's because all of us, I think, hunger for some principle or some set of principles that will help us to help ourselves as we work our way through this broken, frustrating world. But it's interesting, if you, if you just look at the fact of the ongoing, ever-increasing growth of this industry, part of what that tells you is that no one has yet found the right answer. No one has yet provided the one-stop self-help principle That solves all of our problems certainly we might be able to make modest gains through some of this material in our health and our wealth and our productivity and even to some degree in our happiness on a day-to-day basis but all the self-help advice in the world can't really solve our deepest problems it can't really answer our biggest questions it certainly can't provide us lasting enduring eternal satisfaction that all of us are seeking out. But if that's true, if the answers aren't there in some self-help podcast, well how then should we live? Well our big idea as we study the second half of Ecclesiastes 1 and into Ecclesiastes 2, our big idea is this: that God gives enjoyment to those who trust in him. God gives enjoyment to those who trust in him. Our sermon this morning is going to have three parts. Uh, first, the curse, the curse Second, the counter-efforts, the counter-efforts. And then third, the conclusions, the conclusions. So in this first section, what I read at the beginning of uh, our reading time uh, was verses 12 through 18, and this deals with the curse, uh, the curse that we see. And in verse 12, uh, as this section starts off, uh, we have a second identification of who the author is of Ecclesiastes. He writes, "'I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem.'" Now, this is very similar to the first identification we got of who the author is back in chapter 1, verse 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, there's overlap. We have that he is the preacher, that he's king in Jerusalem, but in verse 1, we had that this is a son of David. Now, that phrase could apply to any of the sons descended from David who reigned as king over Israel, but here in verse 12, we see, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel, Over Israel and Jerusalem. Now, what's interesting is there was really only one king who was king over all Israel in Jerusalem, who is also the son of David. David reigned over all Israel and Jerusalem. And then Solomon, the son of David, reigned over all Israel and Jerusalem. But when Solomon died, his son Rehoboam had not yet begun to reign over all the 12 tribes of Israel. They had gone to make him king, had not yet made him king when Rehoboam acted very foolishly, so that the ten northern tribes of Israel broke off to form the nation of Israel, comprised of the ten tribes, uh, whereas the two southern tribes formed the nation of Judah, over which the rest of the sons of David reigned over." So there's only one king who reigned over Israel in Jerusalem, and that's Solomon. Again, I I would argue this is written by Solomon, although some would dispute that, even though I also acknowledge that there is not an explicit naming of Solomon like in Proverbs. These are the Proverbs of Solomon. Or in Song of Songs, this is a Song of Songs, which is Solomon. I would say this is indeed Solomon from all the clues that we have. But regardless, continuing on, what does Solomon want to tell us? When we come to verses 13 and 14, we see that the preacher wants to set out a test. He wants to set out a test where he says, I applied, or literally, I gave my heart. I gave my heart. That's important because that word give comes up at the end of verse 13. What did he give his heart to find out? Well, he wanted to discover what business that God has given to the children of man. He gives his heart to find what God has given to the children of of man. And what he discovers in the course of this test is that he discovers that God has given to the children of man an unhappy business. Very literally, this is an evil business God has given to the children of man. Now, in the Bible, evil does not always refer to something that is morally evil. He's not charging God with some kind of sin. But evil often means a misfortune or a disaster or a calamity. And he's saying it's this disastrous calamity that God has given to the children of man. Well, what's he talking about? When did God give this calamity to the children of man as business to be busy with? Well, he's talking back to Genesis 3 about the curse of sin. After our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned against God's Word, God set a curse over all of creation that wrecked relationships and that caused all of our work not to be fruitfully productive but to bear thorns and thistles. And you may remember that last week, uh, when we talked about the word vanity that shows up all throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, we saw it in verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. That that word for vanity in the Hebrew was translated into a Greek word in the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament. And that word, which was what the Apostle Paul would have used for his Greek Old Testament, Well, he used that same word in Romans chapter 8, verse 20, which talks about unhappy business that God gave to the children of man. In Romans 8, verse 20, Paul wrote this, for the creation was subjected to vanity. That's the Greek word that translates this Hebrew word in Ecclesiastes for vanity. In our English Bible, it's futility. For the creation was subjected to futility or frustration, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. God subjected creation to futility, to vanity, to frustration. Again, to relationships that are broken and to work that bears thorns and thistles instead of good fruit. Everything in this world is vanity now because of the curse from sin. Well, what's wrong? Well, in verse 15, the preacher gives us the fatal flaw of this world. He says, what is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Because something is fundamentally broken. Something is fundamentally crooked. Something is fundamentally missing. We are in a state where this world cannot be put right by our own efforts. And so in verses 16 through 18, the preacher sets out this test. He says, I'm going to search this out. I'm going to figure out with all of the great surpassing wisdom that he has... Again, if this is not Solomon, this is greatly weakened. He's saying, with all the great wisdom that he had, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before him. He says, my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to no madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. The wisest man who ever lived, apart from Jesus Christ himself... Says that in all of his wisdom, he was not able to find anything in this world that was more than just chasing after wind. He says that in fact, as he increased in wisdom, he increased in vexation, and the one who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Given the reality of the curse from the fall because of sin, there is no place we can look to, there is no principle or set of principles, there's no self help book we can read that will bring us true happiness and lasting satisfaction in this world. Sometimes problems cannot be solved. Uh, When I was uh, a junior in college, I took a a computer programming class. I had been uh, pretty interested in computers when I was in middle school and high school. Um, uh, but I knew that I didn't want to be a computer programmer. Um, I knew at that point I wanted to be a pastor, and so I was a, a different kind of major. When I got into the computer programming class, just to do it, just to try it, I remember that first day, I was the only humanities major in the room. They asked, what are all the majors of everyone in this programming class? And we went through the mathematics and engineering and computer science and computer engineering and all these classes. And the professor said, did I miss anyone? And I raised my hand and said I was an English major. And the whole room turned around to look at me like, are you lost, kid? What I really enjoyed about being an English major didn't serve me well in that class. Because if you're an English major, and children, if you're looking at a, for a major in college, uh, take note of this. The open secret about being an English major is your homework is to write papers on literally anything you want to. As long as you give some evidence and make a compelling case, you can write about anything in the world you want to and get good grades for it. I loved being an English major. The difference in computer programming is that if you don't write the right code, it is terribly unforgiving. Either your code will compile from what you have written into a program that will run, or you'll get an error. Either your code will do what you want it to do, or it won't. Either it will give you the correct answer, or it won't. These things, when they are broken, are absolutely unforgiving. And I remember... Two times when major assignments came where I felt absolutely helpless because here I was an English major trying to hack my way through this, and I could not figure it out. It's a terribly helpless feeling. I couldn't just riff off the rest of of an English paper and turn it in and hope for the best. If this didn't work, I was going to get a zero for the assignment. Well, the first time I I got help, I, I talked to a friend of mine who was a senior computer science major, and he found instantly what I had done wrong, and he pointed me in the right direction so that I could fix what I had done wrong. But the second time, I remember toward the end of the semester when I was handing in my final project, I remember for days I stared at the computer screen, could not figure out what was wrong. It was so helpless. I felt like I I could never fix it. Now, eventually I did. I found the solution. I fixed it. I remember triumphant that morning turning in the assignment. But I think about that time when I think about the problems of this world. See, very often we want to think that this world is like that. We might encounter challenges that are very difficult. At first, we might not know how to solve them, but either we can turn to a friend who has a little bit more experience in this area, or if we just keep at it and find the right information online or something like that, some self-help product perhaps, then there is a solution. We can find the solution. We can rise above the brokenness and fallenness of this world from the curse of sin. But where that may have worked in my computer programming class The preacher tells us that there's no solution in this world. What is broken cannot be fixed. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. But is this really true? Surely there's got to be something that we can apply to our lives to help us rise above the curse of sin. Well, the preacher says he tries everything. His test is to try out the entire world, to try to find some place where we can find lasting satisfaction in this world. And he tests two areas, number one, pleasure, and then number two, wisdom, pleasure and wisdom. So this brings us into the second section, the counter-efforts, trying to resist the curse, apply counter-efforts to rise above the curse. Now, the, the, the first test, the test of pleasure, comes in verses 1 through 11, and so we'll read that now. So read with me Ecclesiastes 2, verses 1 through 11 for the very first counter-effort. The preacher says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself, but behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest, Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil that I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity, and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So this is the first test, the test of pleasure. And At the end, the preacher discovers it's all vanity. So first he tries direct pleasure. He tries going after laughter. He tries going after wine, and he doesn't party for partying's sake. He says he's guided by wisdom. This is a a test, an experiment. He searches the far extents of pursuing pleasure directly. But in verse 1, he says this also was vanity. Well, then he tries finding pleasure uh, by great achievements. And understand in verses 4 through 6... It's very clear that what he is doing is what Derek Kidner calls building a secular Garden of Eden. There was a scholar named Arian Verheij, and forgive me if I've pronounced that name wrong, who points out all the words that appear in verses four through six, where they also appear in Genesis one and two to describe the original creation of the world. The word to plant in verse 5 and the garden in verse 5 and to water something in verse 6 and growing in verse 6 and to make in verses 5 and 6. All these are words about God's work in creating the world and especially the Garden of Eden. And beyond this, there's another important word. In verse 5, that word that's translated parks, there's a Persian word that we have in English that also went into Hebrew. It's the word paradise. He created paradises, uh, this word is sim. You can hear it in Hebrew. It's the word for paradise. It's Persian, both in English and in Hebrew. This was a paradise he created, a new Garden of Eden. But where God saw that everything that he had created was very good, the preacher says, all of this is vanity. Then in verses 7 through 8, he tests pleasure from great wealth with servants and livestock and money and singers and concubines. But in verses 9 through 11, while he acknowledges that the greatness of his pleasure surpassed all who came before him, and where he does have modest success. This is important. He has modest success in verse 10. He says, "My heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil." That's important. We'll come back to that idea. But nevertheless, in verse 11, he says that all of this is a vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun." That's the first test, the test of pleasure, and it fails. Well, the second test is the test of wisdom in verses 12 through 17. This is the second counter-effort. So let's read verses 12 through 17. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. Well, the second set test, the test of wisdom and its contrast, madness and folly, once again, the preacher acknowledges there is modest gain from wisdom, just like there's modest gain in pleasure. You can make gains in these areas. You can also make modest gain in wisdom, because wisdom is like light, or it's like having eyes to see. Well, the fools don't see the fact that they're about to walk over the side of a dangerous cliff, but the wise have eyes to see, and they're able to avoid the most perilous pitfalls in this life. But what the preacher says is, he says, look, then I realized, just like the fool dies, so I will die. Both of us are going to die together, and both of us, very quickly, will be forgotten. And so in verse 15, he asks a question, why then have I been so very wise? That's an interesting question. He's saying, look, if wisdom is much more difficult to live that way, if it requires a tremendous amount of effort and exertion and time and carefulness, but yet it can't get me past death, is it really wise to spend your days living wisely? If everyone's going to die, is it wise to live wisely? And he's saying, in itself, wisdom is not the answer. All of this is deeply distressing. I hated life, he says, verse 17, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. Now, it's interesting, in these tests, the tests of pleasure and the tests of wisdom, uh, the preacher may not do precisely what you or I would do in 2021, but understand that these categories are still exactly the same. The details may look different, but the categories are the same. Think about how much we look to pleasure to find satisfaction and joy, to entertainment, to television, to movies and to music, to sports and to video games, to social media and parties, social events, to pop culture or to alcohol or other substances, to gambling or to achievement. Think about all the academic and business and career and health achievements we chase after, the money or investment success that we long for. Understand there are so many self-help books that can give you modest gains in these areas, but all of it at the end of the day is vanity. Or what about wisdom? There's self-help resources abounding to help you improve in your leadership wisdom, and your productivity wisdom, and your political wisdom, and your parenting wisdom. In fact, if you Google stoicism, you may or may not know this, but stoicism is an ancient Greek form of philosophy. And it's making a huge comeback right now as people are trying to take these ancient Greek principles, and uh, of enduring life, like a Stoic, and thinking that's the way to navigate life. It's a huge industry right now. All kinds of material on it. There's nothing new under the sun. But whatever it is, pleasure or wisdom, the preacher has identified the problem, the curse of sin, and he's conducting this experiment where he's trying to make these counter efforts to push back against the effects of the curse. What then are the conclusions of this thorough, long-term study? He's given us provisional conclusions along the way, but in this last section, verses 18 through 26, he gives us the final conclusions. And so in this third section, the conclusions, comes in this last part, verses 18 through 26. Read with me first, verses 18 through 23, where we come to the first conclusion. There are two conclusions. The first conclusion, as we will see, is despair. Look at what he says. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. The preacher looks at his life, and he says all the toil with which he toils, he can't keep it. When he dies, he has to give it away, and you know who might inherit it? A fool who has done nothing to gain it. He scrimped and saved and scraped together his resources over his life, living every bit of his life by every ounce of wisdom he possesses, and the fruits of his toil may go to a fool. This is a grievous evil, and he despairs over this. In fact, he says, living this way, even nights are not restful. You can't even get a good night's sleep if you're trying to find meaning in the toil of this world. Because the greatest accomplishments of this world are all vanity. Well, this isn't only the Bible that says this. If you listen to the world, you hear this despair everywhere. Because if all you have to live for is this world, there is no logical conclusion other than despair. One of the clearest illustrations of this, it's a little dated, but you still hear this song on the radio a lot, is by Uh, Queen, the song Bohemian Rhapsody, where they sing, nothing really matters to me. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. This is a very common, very clear uh, conclusion to draw from looking at everything to be gained under the sun. Solomon sees it, and this world is aching because of the despair that fills it. But this isn't the only conclusion that Solomon draws. You might think that our study in Ecclesiastes is just dour and sad and nothing but depression. But that brings us to 24 through 26, where we see the second conclusion, a conclusion of faith. Now, this may not seem like it would stand naturally with despair, despair and faith. But remember, sometimes the preacher, the, the preacher is clearing away errors for us so that we can more clearly see the only truth and hope that we have. In this world and the next. And here we see it faith. Hear the word of the Lord from verses 24 through 26. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom. And knowledge and joy, but to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give it to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. What the preacher is saying here is that if we stop treating the fruit of our efforts, if we stop looking at this world as ultimate, it can't bear that weight. If we stop looking at this world as ultimate, we can start to enjoy this world For what it is. The enjoyment doesn't come from trying to squeeze every bit of enjoyment from this world as though it is our only hope. Our enjoyment rather comes from God Himself. Because God not only gives us, remember that word, gives us evil, unhappy business in life, but He is the one who also gives us enjoyment. It comes from the hand of God. For to the one who pleases Him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But there's a warning here. To the one who does not please God, to the sinner, God gives only gathering and collecting, just work, just toil, just efforts in this life, only to ultimately lose it, a life of vanity. Well, how then does one please the Lord? Well, the Bible answers this question in Hebrews 11, verse 6. that Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. This is a life lived by faith, a life that's not looking to this world to satisfy every desire you have, but looking to God. And so two people who are under the exact same conditions, toiling in the exact same work, side by side, can be doing the same thing and yet have a very different experience. If both are scuba diving, it's as if only one has an air tank. If both are skydiving, it's as if only one has a parachute. If both are toiling, only one can find enjoyment and satisfaction in this life. Same conditions, very different experience. Why? Why? Because the joy isn't in the work. The joy isn't in the achievements. The joy isn't in the pleasure itself. The joy isn't in anything under the sun. Which means that no amount of self-help can help you to help yourself to find it. The joy is rather with God who gives enjoyment as a gift to the one who trusts in Him. And if you seek for and cling to joy directly, you'll never find it. But if you seek God and His kingdom first then all these things will be added to you. Well, how then should we live? Well, two applications from this text. The first is this. Give up trying to find enjoyment in pleasure or in wisdom. Give up trying to find enjoyment, satisfaction, joy, in pleasure or wisdom. The Bible warns us often about worldliness. And when the Bible does warn us about worldliness, it's a warning about seeking ultimate enjoyment in the vain things of this world that are under the sun. And when God continually warns us again and again through the Bible about this worldliness in His Word, we need to understand it's not because God wants us not to find enjoyment. He warns us against worldliness because He wants us to find true enjoyment. This is so vividly declared for us in the prophet Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. God says, be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, God says. And they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. The cisterns you dig for yourself in your toil and in your pleasure and in your wisdom, if you dig these for yourselves, these are broken. They cannot hold the refreshing water that you are seeking to drink from to satisfy your great thirst. So if you spend your life seeking laughter, ultimately that laughter will lose its pleasure. It's so interesting, there are so many psychological studies, both scholarly studies and case studies, that prove this over and over again, that laughter does help to relieve tension and sorrow in the moment. There are modest gains to be gained from laughter, but in an ultimate sense, laughter is vanity. Some of the most miserable people in this world are the people who make us laugh the most. When one of the great comedians of all time, Robin Williams, tragically committed suicide, a comedian who worked with him, a man named Jim Norton, published an opinion piece in Time magazine where he said this. This comedian said, the funniest people I know seem to be the ones surrounded by darkness. And that's probably why they're the funniest. The deeper the pit, the more humor you need to dig yourself out. Ecclesiastes is a warning that laughter can never get you out of the pit. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is, la- what is lacking cannot be counted. It's all vanity. But not just laughter. Moreover, if you spend your life seeking pleasure through wine or other substances, these will turn from a servant to try to help you get through the emotional pain of what you're dealing with, from a servant to your master. Substance abuse is a classic example of how C.S. Lewis described all sin as an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. You'll want it more, and you will get less pleasure from it because it is all vanity. And so if you spend your life also pursuing achievement or wealth, in the same way, you must all give it away. Solomon recreated the Garden of Eden. I don't care what you're doing. It's not as impressive as that. But all of his toil was nothing more than vanity and a striving after the wind, nothing to be gained by it. If even the richest man in the history of the world saw the grievous evil that he would lose everything he had after his death, then what are you hoping to gain from your toil? What do you hope to gain from your anthill-sized kingdom? Do you see that you can never really gain it? Give up trying to find enjoyment in pleasure or wisdom. The second application then is this, seek enjoyment in God through faith in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, God makes no secret of the fact that He desires to give us enjoyment, to give us pleasure. It's all over the Bible. Psalm 16, verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And we're Presbyterians. The very first question of our Shorter Catechism asks, what is man's chief end? What is the reason you were made and created to exist? Well, man's chief end is to glorify God. You are here to bear witness to the eternal, infinite glory of God. But not only that, you are here to enjoy Him forever. God created you to enjoy Him forever. Again, God makes no secret of his desire to give us pleasure and enjoyment. The problem is not in what God has failed to tell us. He's told us this. The problem is rather that we simply don't believe him. Every time we sin, we're making a judgment. We're making an evaluation. In fact, we're, we're making a wager, placing a bet that what we think will bring us pleasure will be a better pleasure, a more lasting pleasure, a more enduring pleasure than the pleasure that God provides to those who trust in him. Now, this is foolish, but it's not only foolish. God says that it is an appalling, shocking, desolation-bringing evil to forsake Him, the fountain of living waters, in order to dig for ourselves these cisterns that are broken and cannot hold water. It's the horrifying sin of turning away from the glory of the Creator in order to pursue happiness in, to worship what is created. The gospel announces, though, that God has made a solution. Where this world is broken and cannot be fixed from the inside out, God sent Jesus Christ, His only Son, down from heaven to bring about the healing and the repair that we could never do for ourselves. Jesus Christ came into this world and suffered under the brokenness and the sin of this world, bearing our sin and our shame upon Himself at the cross, dying for our sins, And raised up to a resurrected life, so that one day he might usher in a resurrected world where nothing is crooked and where nothing is missing, and we will enjoy God face to face forever. And all those who trust in Christ will be saved through the forgiveness of their faithless worldly evil when they look to Christ by faith. If you've spent your life up to this point seeking happiness apart from Christ, Let me plead with you. Turn to Christ in faith today. Don't wait a moment longer. You're only bringing yourself more heartache from the vanity of this world. But this passage is teaching us also not only about how we can be saved, as critical and as foundational as that is, this passage also teaches us wisdom for the daily lives that we must lead. Through faith in God, God gives us enjoyment in our toil. That's the only way you can enjoy your toil. If your life and your achievements and your wealth have to bear the weight of your soul's insatiable appetite for satisfaction, then you'll never find joy. But if they don't have to bear that weight, if you have put that weight on the shoulders of Jesus Christ who can bear that weight, then you don't have to treat this world as an end in itself. You can simply enjoy everything in this world for what it is. If God is the foundation of your soul's happiness, then you can see everything that comes to you as a gift coming down from heaven from the Father of lights in whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. He never changes. He gives nothing but good gifts to His children if we are looking to Him in faith to receive them. This is the secret to living well. It's not about self-help promises to give the right principle to find enjoyment in the things of this world. It's an approach to everything in this world, to live by faith, believing that it is God and God alone who gives enjoyment to those who trust him. Are you seeking enjoyment in God through faith in Jesus Christ? If so, then you will find the sweetness of joy even in the most bitter moments of your life. Or are you vainly seeking enjoyment in this world for itself? If so, you will only toil in this life. You will never find the satisfaction you were looking for all the way up to the day that you die and someone else gains the fruit of everything you have worked for. Don't be a fool. Seek enjoyment in Christ that lasts for all eternity. Let's pray. Lord, you've promised that at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. You have told us that you are the fountain of living waters and we'd be fools to dig for ourselves at broken cisterns to replace the joy that you provide. Father, help us turn from our sin of looking at your creation, your handiwork, and worshiping that and seeking good and satisfaction there, rather than looking to you, the creator and the redeemer of all things. We pray that you would turn our eyes by the power of your spirit to Jesus Christ in faith, to look in him for the forgiveness of sins and for the satisfaction that we will gain in life everlasting.